0: Welcome to Lit Mag Love, presented by Room Magazine and We Are Lit Writers. I'm Rachel Thompson, writer, editor, and online instructor. In this first season of Lit Mag Love, the podcast, I interview editors from literary journals and share readings from the pages of Lit Mags. My aim is for you, dear writer, to find a Lit Mag where you may have your own words cherished by readers. Welcome to LitMag Love, the podcast, and in this episode, we have Thea Prieto from The Gravity of the Thing. The Gravity of the Thing is an online independent literary magazine dedicated to the publication of new and innovative writing. Since the journal's inception in 2013, The Gravity of the Thing has been named one of 30 best online magazines in 2016 from Book Fox, and one of 15 best literary journals in to- of 2015 from Authors Published Magazine they publish work that is aware of its literary form and we're going to talk about that in the interview and writing that defamiliarizes in craft or content for an enhanced rendering of reality and my guest Teia Prieto has since 2006 edited for Counterpoint Press, the Berkeley Fiction Review, the Portland Review, and the Chiron Journal. I don't know if I'm saying that one right. Uh, and the
1: Chiron Journal. Chiron Journal,
0: right. Anthology of Interdisciplinary Media. And she teaches creative writing at Portland State University, including courses. There's a course called The Creative Writing Through Guided Meditation and Introduction to Horror Fiction. So welcome, Taya.
1: Thank you, Rachel.
0: And I first want to start by talking about your own writing and just how, how you actually came to writing. If there's, are, th- are there artists in your family or in the last couple of generations of your family?
1: Oh, uh, certainly there are, um, there's a couple of generations of artists in my family. They tend to be either arts and crafts, as in ceramics, metalwork, woodwork, sculpture. And then on my mom's side, I'd say it's, it's mostly performance arts, music, acting. And so although I, there's not many writers in my family, I think I come to writing as a kind of a combination of both arts and craft and kind of performance. I'd say I came to writing through music, actually, probably just listening to music when I was young and starting to just make mental film strips in my head to to the music, which ended up turning into lines of text in my head and lines of dialogue. And I think it just piled up at one point till one day I just sat down. And I think I just, within a space of a couple of months, punched out something like 400 pages and I'm not gonna claim that it was very good. <laughs> um, it wasn't very good writing. But when that time came to just stop trying to hold it all in my head and remember all of these bits of story that I'd been creating while listening to music, I think that's that's really when I began to think of the way my imagination was transforming itself through text, through writing. That was many years ago now. I've been to a couple different workshops and studied creative writing in a couple different campuses and a couple different settings and i don't think too much has changed as far as my inspiration goes i still listen to music to write of course i write very differently than i did back then and unfortunately not as um, not as productively i'm not sitting down and creating 400 pages in a couple months anymore but i'd like to think i'm more more thoughtful more aware of my writing process now and definitely my editing process
0: I love that, that you listen to music. And do you then, at times, like, does the music become part of the soundtrack of the story in in a way that's more obvious? Or is it always just sort of a subtle undercurrent of of your writing?
1: Uh, Inevitably, I'd say it becomes subtle. At at first, it might be really overt. It might be the, the title of the story is actually the title of the song. And Um, And I'll write with that kind of the pace of the song in mind. Through the editing process of any single piece, though, usually the song drops away. It kind of serves as the inspiration. And then as I start to write, I realize the different different craft that goes into writing versus the different craft that goes into creating music or listening to music. And so I think inevitably the song functions as a prompt and then... I kind of leave it behind as the story starts to realize itself.
0: I love that. It's sort of what brings you into it, or as one of my teachers called it, that's the scaffolding of your story, then that you can kind of let drop away once the piece is more defined.
1: Definitely, definitely.
0: And I know you've published your writing in a few different lit mags, and I wondered if you can think of the best experience that you had with publication and what made it stand out for you.
1: What made it stand out? I know that I'm thinking about a couple of different publications where I was able to work with the editor before the story went to print and discuss ways that my writing might be transformed into their journal. For example, um, I'm working right now with an editor from the Yellow Review Overview over at the University of Mississippi. They accepted one of my pieces, Termites, which I fully admit is a formatting pain it is constructed of three different uh, separate columns that have footnotes that interject into the three columns. And each of the separate columns represent different points of view. And it was, a, it was really hard to format just into a Word document. But the Alabasha Review is an online magazine. So obviously, a whole bunch of different obstacles come into play, not just in getting the three columns formatted, but also in inserting footnotes when there's no natural page break. So talking with the editors and how to translate a piece like that into an online format, and it's still kind of, uh, that process is still in the works. It's not an easy process, but I always much appreciate the editor's commitment to helping the piece become uh, realized from a print form to an online form. And that was a particularly experimental piece, and so their commitment to um, accurately representing experimental pieces I uh, have I've been very much appreciative of their patience and their willingness and their open-mindedness in that process
0: yeah and they're really trying to realize your vision which is just wonderful to see and I could see that being really challenging to do something like that online definitely and how how do the three columns work I'm curious do you, is it things happening in the same time but just from different points of view
1: Yes. I had three columns. Each of them represented a different point of view and they were happening simultaneous and each of them operated mostly like a stream of consciousness and they were all engaged in the same activity, but you have different age ranges between the characters. And so you might have a a young child who's frustrated over the chore they're doing and the middle child who is a little bit more detailed and descriptive of of her frustration towards the chore and then you have an older sibling who is taking on responsibility but also resentful of that responsibility in relation to the chore. So um, inevitably the story builds to an argument but my goal was to have each of these characters simultaneously engaged in this chore and the situation for their own reasons. I think I, I can't remember who I heard it from or which teacher but it's A writing teacher and from from way back and it's something that I've kind of a lesson that I kind of held on to is that there's no inevitably like in the world but definitely in fiction writing your characters can't be entirely all good and entirely all bad so even as characters are making mistakes they will have a very good reason they believe a very good reason for doing it for misbehaving or for acting poorly towards others and and even as a character is doing something that might be very moral and ethical in the eyes of the audience, there might be some undercurrent self, you know, praise that the character is giving, or there's some underlying selfishness that comes with that morality. Selfishness and selflessness, I suppose, don't necessarily have to be either all good or all bad. And, and so those, with those three columns in that short story, I kind of wanted to have characters stand on their own two feet next to each other and invite the reader to engage with those points of views in any way they wish. I I workshopped that story once, and I remember the readers said that they some of them read a single column all the way from pages 1 through 10 before they went back to page 1 and read a single, the second column, from pages 1 through 10 before coming back to page 1 to read the third column. Other people read just page 1, page 2, page 3, jumping back and forth between the columns. And so kind of um, the same way that Gravity of the Thing is a defamiliarization journal. And a lot of our editors come to the Gravity of the Thing by way of their own interest in defamiliarization and how it enters their own work. I definitely, with the piece that was published with at Yellow Basha Review, was interested in defamiliarizing not just characterization, but also the way readers engage with writing in general.
0: I love that because they can almost create their it's like a choose your own adventure in a way that they can create their own path through the story and I'm sure it reads differently in different ways and it maybe even i guess identifies the the complexity of like the reader his or herself and how they interpret pieces too.
1: Sure, and the editorial process is also very interpretive. Uh, The piece is up at the Yalabasha Review right now, although it is still under construction. I'm working with one of the new editors for the incoming academic year on formatting, which is something I think a lot of writing students and a lot of writers and editors, kind of something that I've realized through the publication process with my own work is that just because a piece is published doesn't mean it becomes stationary or stagnant. Uh, the piece, uh, my short story was, was published back in May, but it's still being edited and reformatted and rethought. And that editorial process is still going. It's one of the joys of uh, printing online is that um, a piece doesn't have to, it can remain a, a living piece of writing. I know that sometimes when my work is published in print, sometimes feels like it's it's been sunk into that form kind of permanently. And online publications, there's always a chance that in the future, weeks into the future, months into the future, maybe even years into the future, that the piece could take on another form and and keep evolving in a sense.
0: Yeah, so it's like almost never done. I'm just looking I'm looking at the piece now and I'll make sure to link to it in the show notes as well. But I, I like in terms of how the columns are done, too, that it almost feels like little termites are kind of eating their way through these, these the white space on the page, too. It's, it's gorgeously done. I kind of love that you're so open to the, to the evolution of the piece, too, because I do know even less experimental forms, particularly with poets, I find, that they'll publish in a journal, and then what actually ends up in a book later on will be quite different. So they'll continue kind of working at it and the, and the piece evolves and has a life, a lot of um, things that happen, I guess, over the lifetime of the piece's presence in publications.
1: Yes, definitely. Um, I, that's also been my um, my experience talking with other writers as well that were short story writers that then later got their collections published and The way stories can be translated from short story form into a collection, let alone short story form being translated into perhaps novel chapters, there's so many different ways a story can evolve, even changing print form. And um, and I know that I'm sure there's writers out there that would find that kind of overwhelming or even uh, kind of (laughs) discouraging. That writing is never done; that it could always keep evolving. I personally find that to be very inspiring. That our writing, like ourselves, are always subject to change and and even if a piece of writing is never edited again the context in which it's received will always be changing and so I think it's kind of I I don't I think it might be even a little bit short-sighted to think that writing can just be published in one form and that it won't ever change again that that is the end of the road for that piece of writing it certainly isn't and uh, it's not the end of the road for how it's read in the future by future readers and how it's interpreted and so to keep thinking of writing as living documents I think is is useful for for my own thinking personally
0: one way I find that way of thinking to freeing for newer writers is when sometimes they they will be holding on to a piece until it's quote unquote perfect before they send it out to a journal sure. and and I think if they realize just how many professional writers end up maybe changing a piece after it's been published, then they know, okay, I can let this go a little earlier
1: Oh yes I mean there's writers who famously published a book and then would you know do an updated edition of it for you know every year for years and just <laughs> I'm sure plenty of their peers were like, just leave it alone, it's done but you know there's but there's an input you know a, a compulsion there to uh, keep working on a piece of writing just the way to I think similar to how people want to keep working on themselves and Return to characters, return to ideas, and I um, I think that it can be very much a an interesting meditative practice, if not artistic and um, communal practice.
0: Yeah, it kind of speaks to impermanence and the changing nature of things. Like I, I've definitely appreciated seeing poets. I've seen there's one award-winning poet in particular that that's really celebrated in Canada that I loved when she was reading uh, her work. It was Evelyn Lau who. I was like yeah, I've changed this poem since you know she's got her book open, but she's reading a different version than what's actually in the book itself. Huh. Um, and I think that that taught me a lot, just in terms of with poetry. Anyway, you feel like it's never done, and maybe it just never is done, and and that's okay. That's like a letting go that happens when when you do publish it in print.
1: It's true. And also a reversion to previous drafts can sometimes be an evolution. I, uh, I'm thinking in particular of a piece that was published at the Gravity of the Thing. We received it and were interested in publishing it, but it's, it didn't seem that it was quite experimental or defamiliarized as might fit the Gravity of the Thing's main platform. But we reached out to the author and asked them what they thought about how their piece might fit into a journal of defamiliarization. And the author, she she said, wait a minute, I've got a previous draft that I thought was too experimental. Maybe you'd be interested in looking at it. And we looked at the previous draft, saw how she had edited from one draft to the more formal second draft. And we ended up working together to create a third draft, which was actually mostly using the initial draft, the more experimental version, but just using some of the moments of clarity from the second draft to kind of enhance the first. It's interesting, the the evolution of a draft of any story, I, I rarely experience it in my own writing or as editing is linear. It tends to, you could almost imagine it's a spider graph or a, a bubbling outward is like thought bubbles and maybe even a family tree. And thinking that about how each story might be able to branch out can be extremely complex and also kind of again freeing. It could be overwhelming sometimes how many ways a story can be correct and different at the same time. Inevitably it ends up being the author's choice that this is this feels right, this reads correctly, this is the iteration of the story that best suits itself. And I think the story, the characters, once they become more you know, realized, they end up kind of speaking for themselves and deciding how the story best suits itself.
0: So you've taught a course on horror fiction as we mentioned in the intro and when we last spoke you said when you're reading submissions if a ghost appears you're drawn so what is it about horror writing that particularly draws you
1: i think it's the tension i'm definitely drawn to writing that is so that is really apt in the way of the craft element of tension and a lot of horror I think uh, balances a lot on effective tension building. In fact, there's a quote by Henry James in his Art of Fiction, his book uh, called Art of Fiction. And he describes, and I'm gonna uh, paraphrase, maybe even badly, (laughs) but I'm gonna paraphrase now. Um, I've always kind of thought of it in terms of the first and second shoe dropping. He describes a lot of fiction that makes use of mighty mutations and the supernatural as uh, relying on a, a tension dynamic that involves the first shoot dropping which is in a story of with uh, horror in it is that something's wrong and the second shoot dropping tends to be towards the end of the story where it confirms that indeed something is wrong and something has to happen as a consequence um, and this kind of first and second shoe dropping can generate a ton of tension. As soon as the first shoe drops, the reader knows that something has to come, and so much tension can be drawn out between that you know first and second shoe dropping. And, it, and this doesn't occur just in horror fiction either. I, you know, the, there's whole uh, TV series that rely on this around love dynamics. You know, the first episode, of boy and girl meet, or you know, some such thing. And the second shoe that must drop, the audience knows is, will they ever get together? Will we find out? But there can be tons and tons of seasons and episodes between that of how they might come to each other and how they might find each other or not. And in horror fiction, you can see this happen often. And I mean, you can see it, it's true with most uh, horror movies, actually, that you know, a whole bunch of college kids go into a house and the house is all creaky and the audience knows, oh. Something's not right with this house. And so you wait for the second shoe to drop the entire movie. And at the end, yes, it is indeed haunted or it was never haunted. It was always something else. But what happens between that first initial question and the second shoe dropping the answer, oh my gosh, there can be such extreme suspense built up. And in terms of horror fiction, I see you know, tension being employed effectively, I can't turn the pages fast enough. I'm just, you know, smoke is rising out of the book as I'm <laughs> flipping the pages. And
0: yeah. I just, just want to get them. to that other shoe dropping. Yeah,
1: exactly. And, and you kind of don't want to either because it means the book is over, but it also, some authors can do it so effectively. For example, I recently wrote a review for Glaxo by Ron, uh, Hernan Rossino, which was published at Propeller Magazine. And it was this wonderful book. It was uh, uh, Roncino's first piece published. It was translated into English. Um, he's an Argentinian writer. And Glaxo, without giving away too much of the book, it has this second shoe that drops, where the first shoe is a question of what happens between these characters that are friends that cause this kind of trauma. And by the end, the second shoe that drops, I'm trying to be vague is not to ruin the story, The trauma that gets revealed is nothing in comparison to the broader, the individual trauma is so small in scope to the revealed, like uh, societal trauma. There's this kind of, as the second shoe drops, it just resounds and ripples outward and um, even past the last page of the book, and you kind of just sit with this horror and it's <laughs> I ended up reading it twice over because it was I had to see how that effect was done and it's so subtle and wonderful and horrifying and <laughs> I highly recommend it it was this it was a very short book but it's a you can sit down and read it you could easily read it twice I very much enjoyed that experience
0: nice well, I'll make sure to link to your review in the show notes as well wonderful up on the litmaglovepodcast.com site Um, So we're going to have to, we're going to take a sponsor break in just a minute. But before I do, I just want to talk to you a little bit about defamiliarization. And we can talk more about it after the break too. But stranging something. So what does that mean? And how has, how have you seen it working in different levels in the gravity of the thing?
1: Uh, Defamiliarization is an interesting artistic technique, not specific just to writing, but half the editors at The Gravity of the Thing and I all took a class with Lainey Zumas at Portland State University. She's a wonderful writer. She wrote Farewell Navigator, and uh, she actually has a new book coming out beginning of next year called Red Clocks, which I'm very much looking forward to. She taught a class on defamiliarization at Portland State University, and It was fascinating, and there was often we discussed different elements of defamiliarization. There's a whole bunch of them. There's uh, different ways that writing can be defamiliarized at the craft level. It can be defamiliarized at the sentence level. It could be even defamiliarized at the word level. Even in terms of uh, genre, defamiliarizing what we think of when we think fiction or nonfiction, different forms of poetry. In fact, poetry... In a sense, Victor Shklovsky, who wrote Arda's Technique, who first coined, I believe he first coined the term defamiliarization, or at least was applying it to writing specifically. He described poetry as being an excellent form of defamiliarization, as a truer kind of writing. And a lot of, there's a lot of different elements of defamiliarization. For example, changing narrator back and forth can be one way of destabilizing a reading experience so that the reader is forced to Kind of see outside the construction of, outside the dream of the story. Or another way of saying that is um, the writer is in effect uh, bearing the device. Bearing the device is actually something the Gravity of the Thing editors and I have been thinking about a lot recently, mainly in terms of opening up a column on the Gravity of the Thing website called Bearing the Device. We were thinking of writing individual essays based off of different aspects of writing, but also different aspects of editing. In other words, letting our our readers, letting our, our contributors kind of look behind the scenes of what's going on in our journal, uh, bearing the device of our publishing process, of our editing process. There's, and there, in a way, it's kind of like there's something lost, but there's also something gained. You can kind of think of it as, as we're showing how the magic trick is done, and there doesn't have to be any lost fantasy in that that um, a writer submits work to us and we accept it, they get to feel wonderful, that the greater world has published them, and they are now a published writer. That's a wonderful thing to uh, feel and to be encouraged with. But bearing the device of the editing process, I think it's important for lots of writers that submit to us to know that we receive hundreds of submissions sometimes. We're able to only publish works that best represent themselves. The piece is solid in its own construction. It also has to be defamiliarized and represent the journal in that sense. And uh, we consider the pieces and how they all work together collectively for a single issue. So that's a lot of weight that a single story or a single poem has to hold. And although we admit that that's, there's a lot of that that has to do with purely the makeup of our journal and in a lot of different journals. I don't think writers should be discouraged when a journal doesn't accept their work. Sometimes there's 50 different elements at work that have nothing to do with the piece. Of course, I think, and I I do believe that many editors aim to support writers primarily, that that is the key effort that goes into publishing, but it is a human process, it's a human system. And by bearing the device behind publishing, by helping readers and writers look behind the curtain of the publishing process, I think it's less to disillusion people and more to show the human effort that is behind it and show the real structure that is at work. And I think with that kind of transparency comes a more fluid conversation and with that clarity comes a a higher art form, a better way for people to communicate and, and uh, support expression through writing.
0: Yeah, it's more demystifying than disillusioning, yeah. I guess. Yeah. And I love what you said about bearing the device. At, at first, I thought you meant bearing, like as into to carry, b e a was like, where is she going with this? But now I, I totally understand what you mean around bearing in terms of really, you know, drawing that curtain aside and 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 i would say that's a large part of what we're trying to do with this podcast too is is to say no you know like dispel those common misconceptions around you know when an editor says no to your writing then you oh you got to do rewrite it it's not good enough it it really could mean so many different things when when a journal isn't able to publish your piece so i love that is that the kind of, like that's the kind of thing you're going to cover and then are there other parts around the mechanics of the journal that you're you're thinking would be exciting to to reveal in that column.
1: Definitely, there's a couple different ideas the editors have at work right now. One of them would be bearing the device submissions so that our writers would know that, you know, this is our step-by-step process for when we receive submissions, how we review them, how they move towards um, move into the maybe category or the yes category, how the editors come to developmental edits if they're necessary. Then also maybe a, a column about after acceptances. This is something that I've seen working in a couple different literary journals that often there's confusion. It, you know, we send out the acceptance, the author goes, yay, thank you, and kind of leaves it there. Sometimes correspondence will drop off, but really there's there's a lot of not just you know, not just work to do, we've got to translate the piece from um, its original format into the journal, which requires some feedback, some edits. But it could also, if we don't go through those steps, it could rob the editors and the writer of a kind of wonderful process of being in that collaborative effort to re-envision their piece translated. Sometimes it's not as simple as copying and pasting it into a journal. And without that kind of process of going through editing, Proofreading, confirming that sometimes editors will end up with a a writer that's surprised or maybe even disappointed in how their piece turned out. After getting the acceptance letter is not the end of that process, and
0: yes, yeah, the beginning of something new. And actually, I would love to ask you, and I'm, I'm planning to ask you some more specifics around that process at the gravity of the thing. First, we need to take a break to hear from our sponsor for this episode. This season of Lit Mag Love, the podcast, is brought to you by my course, Lit Mag Love. So, if you're a writer who wants to feel like a professional, not an amateur, but you just need some proof that you're not wasting your time with this writing thing, and nobody's given you that official card to confirm you're a writer, or if you're a writer who'd love to finish some pieces, but you're having trouble with focus and motivation, or maybe you're a writer who just wants to get your writing out in the world, and instead is gathering dust in a miscellaneous writing file on your computer and you just need help staying accountable. I suggest you check out my course Lip Mag Love. And you can find out more about it at lipmaglove.com where you can get one free lesson. Okay, so now that we're back from our break, I want to ask you to tell me a little bit about what the gravity of the thing is looking for in submissions I guess apart from and in addition to stranging and maybe on the subject of stranging how strange does a submission need to be for you to consider it
1: it doesn't have to be overtly strange I guess uh, to kind of get at your question the defamiliarization can enter writing in in so many different ways I would say that Sometimes it'll be a piece that's overtly experimental. It'll be stranging a format, perhaps kind of like my piece, Termites, which just to look at it, you know that the reading experience is going to be atypical and that a reader is going to have to work a little bit to enter into that kind of piece. On the other hand, defamiliarization might be very subtle. For example, um, we've got a piece that's in the editing process. hasn't been published yet, but um, it defamiliarizes the craft element of time in a sense to so just describe it vaguely the piece works off of a memory trigger in reverse so to read it you you traverse through the writing in a pretty traditional way it's not it's uh, written in paragraphs it's uh, you know not strange words or atypical sentences you kind of just you read through it and before the end, it becomes clear that the point of view is approaching the memory trigger. Now, usually, I've seen in many different submissions in many different ways, and in the, in the you know more human, natural human psychology towards a memory trigger is first something triggers the memory, and then we remember. That is the more natural ordering of events. This story begins in the outer reaches and the details of that memory, and then slowly collapse collapses back towards what triggered the memory in the first place. And so in that sense, defamiliarization is completely at work and the story is defamiliarizing a specific craft element and it can be extremely interesting. And, and I know that our, we, when we look for pieces that are using defamiliarization to publish in, at the gravity of the thing, we're often thinking about not just ways that our writers are experimenting with craft or form, But also in the way that that experimentation relates to the contents. Sometimes experimentation for experimentation's sake can be very fascinating, but it could also run the risk of becoming very mannered writing or a little bit of navel-gazing there. But so Mm
0: -hmm. when... Drawing too much attention to itself, kind of.
1: Exactly. And I know that uh, that is an element of defamiliarization of writing that draws attention to its form, to its own self. But often the question the editors and I ask ourselves when we come to the point of accepting or not accepting a piece is, is the form talking to the content in any way? For example, we published a piece by Alethea uh, Tusher called New Old Friends. And there's a point in the story, it's actually, it's a very entertaining piece and the voice in it's wonderful. uh, I was laughing when I first read it is that's really entertaining and there's a part in the story that drops into poetry, which is interesting in itself, of prose dropping into poetry. But the poetry line breaks are designated with slashes, the same way a poem might be annotated Um, as a sentence.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Right. So the the the, she could have the author could have completely have just used line break and just had the poem appear more in, in a typical poetry kind of uh, format. Instead, it runs the poem as in sentence form with the slashes to denote the line break. And that's significant, not only in that it's, it was a, it was a very interesting move in that it adds a certain over formality to the poetry and also a kind of awkwardness, mm-hmm. which is extremely important because in that story, The contents of that story. The narrator is at a party and feeling really awkward. So the same way the poetry format, that experimentation, that defamiliarization of the poetry form is kind of uh, overly formal and awkward, that's exactly the narrator's take on that party, is that it's this overly formal kind of social exertion (laughs) and also this kind of awkwardness of standing around. So that's an example of a kind of defamiliarization of craft meeting um, the contents in that kind of conversation which was i thought very fitting
0: definitely and actually when you mentioned the piece that works backwards in time um, i mentioned megan bell to before we started recording the publisher for room is editing the this episode the audio for the episode and she wrote a piece that is was part of our No Comment Canlit project. It's a project around sexual assault. Mm-hmm. And in in her piece, it moves backwards, which makes sense. It's about a rape. And it moves backwards in time because of trauma, too. And And anyway, I think it just resonated with me what you were saying about the piece that you have that's kind of starting in this reverse chronology and goes back to... Anyway, it, I'll I'll link to it in the show notes too. But it's definitely a piece that's successful in in that sense, and it does that kind of stranging too. And I find, I just I guess I, I I love talking to you about the stranging because that is something that I really like when we're publishing writing on room is something that defamiliarizes form as well. Even though that's not the majority of what we publish, we publish a lot of more traditional writing. There is such an exciting energy, and I, I feel it from you, and and I I have it a, a bit too around. Um, pieces that break those kind of rules and they can just be so exciting to get when you get them in, you know, just through regular submissions in the slush pile or through uh, a skillful writer like, like Megan.
1: Yes. And there's, um, and it, the familiarization, it pops up everywhere. That's it's been one of the joys of um, editing for the gravity of the thing is the more I read elsewhere in the world, I'll sometimes see how an author intentionally or not kind of stranged a moment or a craft element or a sentence in their writing and how